Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Oh, and Merv and Ken, we're ready to go with a brand new edition of the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Hi, fellas. Hey, Hi, Owen, how are you? How are you doing? Ken, if you were a super famous sports person trying to enjoy a night out that you weren't supposed to be on, mm. would you consider wearing a disguise? Yeah. Going incognito, as they say. Well, so I've, I'm going... I mean, this... this. You're going to Vegas, specifically. <laughs> so so the it's not a question of I've just gone out for a coffee... Ended up having a drink. No, and no, suddenly no. There <laughs> <I am>. Full <laughs> on. Yeah. Full You've on. elected to go to Las Vegas when you're supposed to be at home recuperating from an injury. Sure, you're not due to play the next morning, mm-hmm. but you are being politely requested by your team to pay you a lot of money to at least turn up there, you know, rather than be on a bender in Las Vegas. Would you wear a, a disguise? Oh, I do. how famous am I? Very famous. Your nickname is Johnny Football, Ken. Oh, no. The <laughs> name of the sport that you play is in your nickname. That's and I'm going it. to Las Vegas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I suppose I could rely on people, you know, what what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Maybe your friends might because, go with that, but I'm not sure if all the... See, that's the problem. Yeah. There's, there's been this big, um, in Las Vegas, they're like, hey, tweet your Vegas. Why doesn't everyone get on social media and put up photographs of themselves having an awesome time in Vegas? And then people are like, but that's completely against the ethos of Las Vegas. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but, you know, this is the 21st century. We've got to roll with this. So I would think, I would think, yeah, I would wear it. I would definitely wear at least a cap. Oh, yeah. At least a cap and a pair of shades and maybe, maybe a beard. Yeah, that's a pretty much what Johnny Manziel went for. Apparently a wig, a moustache, glasses. <laughs> and uh, the best detail, a hoodie. Yeah. Uh, a hoodie is described as part of his, <laughs> his costume. I mean, it's a wig or a hoodie, surely. You know, <laughs> yeah. why go to the trouble of getting a wig if you're then but just going to Was he not maybe on? just wearing the hoodie as his actual attire? You know, he's a, yeah. he's a young Trousers. man. Trousers. Part of, the dis- <laughs> yeah. part of the disguise were his trousers. We're going to talk in detail about this one. Uh, you seem quite taken with it, Ken. I'm glad to hear that because I'm going to talk in detail with U.S. Murph about that. But my favourite sportsman wearing a costume story goes way back. It comes from Gay Talese's amazing 1964 Esquire profile of the old heavyweight champ Floyd Patterson. Mm-hmm. The article was called The Loser. Have you ever read this one? I don't think so. Uh, it, this isn't any, there's not much uh, joking to be knocked out of this. It's actually painfully, a painfully sad story. So after being knocked out, by, he's an incredibly introspective person. Uh, Patterson, particularly by the standards of uh, world heavyweight boxing champion. After being knocked out by Ingemar Johansson, he began carrying a disguise to his fights. He fought Johansson a couple of more times, happened to win that, so didn't need to use the disguise. But anyway, he loses to Sonny Liston, decides he uh, has already decided that he's not going to walk out as himself. He's going to wear this disguise onto out of the arena, onto a 30-hour drive to the airport, and subsequently onto a flight which ended up in Spain. As I got onto this plane... He said, essentially, look, I had no idea even where I was going. I saw a thing from Madrid. I said, I'll hop on this one. As I got onto this plane, you'd never recognize me, he said. I had on a beard, mustache, glasses, a hat, and I also limped to make myself look older. I was alone. I didn't care what plane I boarded. When I got to Madrid, I registered as a hotel at a hotel under the name Aaron Watson. I stayed in Madrid for about five days. In the daytime, I wandered around to the poor sections of the city, limping, looking at the people, and the people stared back at me and must have thought I was crazy because I was moving so slowly and looked the way that I did. I ate food in my hotel room, although once I went to a restaurant and ordered soup. I hate soup, but I thought it was what old people would order, so I ate it. And after a week of this, I began to actually think I was somebody else. I began to believe it, and it's nice every once in a while being somebody else. 
So this is not a, the standard sports person interview that you get nowadays mm. or profile this level of incredible introspection and um, painful self-analysis. It's interesting, isn't it's it? It's really interesting, yeah. Oh, th- that whole article is incredible. As I said, it's called The Loser. He calls himself a loser. Why was he doing it? He calls himself a coward. Why was he wearing the disguise? Why did he want to be an old person? Because uh, he just didn't want. Because he was ashamed of himself for losing this fight. He was didn't think he was a man anymore. Mm. Didn't think mm. he was a person. Really, one of the great uh, Muhammad Ali books, King of the World, by David Remnick, is actually a lot of it's about Floyd Patterson as well. Mm. Um, and he comes across just like that. Uh, yeah, amazingly a, interesting person. As as you know, like a, a, a three time loser who just happened to be world heavyweight champion. I mean, everything that he says comes out of his mouth is completely counterintuitive to what you believe a world heavyweight yeah. champion to, to sound like. Uh, it sounds like an article we should be tweeting a link to, which we will do. I just had a look at it there. It, uh, it still very much exists, so uh, we'll we'll send on a link when we get a chance. Really sad this uh, news this week about the death of Chris O'Connor Jr. Lots of great tributes going around the last 24 hours. I'm sure you'll have listened to or read some of them. There's a full page of today's Irish Times dedicated to him. You were quite taken with Malachi Clerkin's article here. Yeah, well, the, the first line of it uh, is in relation to Lemmy from Motorhead, who died last week. Oh, yeah. Um constantly being asked about the one Motorhead song that everyone knows above all others Ace of Spades and you know God you must get so sick and tired of playing Ace of Spades every night because why would I it's effing brilliant (laughs) (laughs) and in the in the same in the same tone I'm sure people may well have prefaced their inevitable question to Christy O'Connor Jr. about the two iron at the Ryder Cup with God you must hate being asked about about this this, but tell us about the two iron. Well, it was such a, yeah, that was an, a, a, obviously an iconic moment. But one I actually remember, funny enough, I was only a bit, in, I was only nine at the time, but I was in uh, the clubhouse of my uncle's tennis club that they played in. I must have been watching them play or something. So anyway, uh, I, this tournament was going on sort of in the background. I'm sure I probably wanted the football to be on or something that I recognized more readily than Ryder Cup golf. I didn't quite understand what this was, to be honest with you. But there's a lot of excitement growing during the course of the day. More and more people coming into the clubhouse. And by the time he played that shot, it seemed to be packed and obviously an unbelievable reaction when he hit it. So it was really the first time that I understood the power of that particular competition, actually. Despite all the pomp and ceremony around the Ryder Cup, it's still, uh, certainly in Ireland, it's still a pretty big deal. But uh, around then, I guess if people were 29 at that point, they were probably cheering this on as though it's this is finally we're achieving something in in mm. sport you know Irish people are standing up and being counted for me I was nine years of age and all I'd had since my first conscious memories of sport was success it, Tour de France wins qualification for the Euros about to qualify for the mm. World Cup this was this was, this is all this is what we did as Irish people we just dominated the world sports scene yeah and uh, well I mean if it you was think- a golden era of Irish sport yeah. 1987 to 1990 was the golden era of Irish sport well it may have been the golden era up until that point I mean, if you're looking at uh, those exact same sports, well, with the exception of cycling, I mean, what we're achieving in golf now compared to what we have achieved, what we had achieved in the 50 years before that, it's it's completely absurd. Yeah, 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 here you go. Having to go with Eamon Darcy again. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But but, I mean, uh, whatever about a golden era back then, I mean, I, I, I think that it is it is odd that. Uh, Ireland as a country has so many of these amazing golf courses and for so long we have to rely on moments like Christy O'Connor it's like <laughs> yeah. you know uh, as if from nowhere Ryder Cup moments uh, to kind of sustain the game in the popular consciousness uh, in in comparison to what it's like now with however many major titles that we've won in the last 10 years it's 9 is it? 9? 3 for Harrington 4 for McElroy one for McDowell, one for Clark, yeah. I'd still be a sucker for Gray McDowell hitting the winning shot at uh, a Ryder Cup. Well, he he, yeah. he pretty much did it at Manor, but, yeah. yeah. But I do, do know, yeah, it obviously wouldn't have the same sort of resonance today. But uh, Yeah, and I, I think it's it, it, the Ryder Cup lends itself to what happened to Christy O'Connor Jr. in a lot of ways, that uh, a brilliant career, you know, a steady career mm. on the European Tour, an entire career, an entire life in a lot of ways, gets distilled down to one shot, uh, I don't think that happens to to guys that. I mean, I was looking at his at his record, you know, and the, the idea of of an Irish player playing at the Masters, for instance, was, you know, when Harrington first did it, it was such a huge thing that we had, we actually had a player playing at this tournament, one of the two tournaments that we could watch <laughs> from start to finish every year. That was such a huge thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the the, the Lemmy uh, quote, it does actually stand up. I mean, the the guy did something absolutely unbelievable at the exact precise moment that he needed to do it the most in his career. And you can say that's 
you know, like that that was that maybe it's unfair to distill a, a man's life down to one moment. But that, if that moment is so good, oh, yeah, and it's it's it, you know it, it's it's so it's just reward for so much hard work that went on before it. I mean, I don't think there's any harm in doing that. Uh, when you're writing the obituaries or, or talking as we are now about about a man who's unfortunately just died, Simon, big rugby news since Monday's podcast. We were focused on, we were so focused on who the next captain's going to be for Ireland that we hadn't given the vacant position of Irish defence coach huge men of thought. Are you surprised by Andy Farrell? Yeah, really, really surprised. <laughs> Literally, everybody was. And the thing about it is, you know, Joe Schmidt's given this a ton of thought. As Shane uh, Horgan referred to on Monday, you know. This Christmas meetup with the players is almost for Joe Schmidt to settle him because his mind is so furiously trying to think of ways to improve the team. So you know the obsessive amount of thought he's given to this position. And then he goes for the one that will get the biggest media splash, which is what Joe Schmidt hates, uh, or we think he hates anyway. Mm. And it's also one that it's it's so obviously something that's easy to give out about Ireland at a future date if things go wrong with Andy Farrell if the defence turns out to be terrible in the Six Nations. And I, I think the other thing about it is that with Ireland, with the position that Ireland are in, everything's quite good. I mean, the World Cup didn't end so brilliantly. But the Six Nations, we've won the last two of them. They didn't need to rock the boat. They didn't need to make a huge decision here. It could have been just some small name from the Southern Hemisphere that nobody had heard of before. Uh, I, the shock value, I think, is the big thing, not only in the way that each of us individually reacted to the story, which is like, what? Andy, this is... Uh, I, I'm intrigued, you know? But also the fact that that seems to be the way everybody reacted. With Irish rugby, there's quite a lot of people now working and making a living on writing and talking about rugby in Ireland. A lot of well-informed people. And it seems like nobody really, I, I certainly didn't see any leaks before, and it seemed to be a very sudden story. Whereas now when there's a team selection or when somebody might be about to be appointed to Leinster coach, generally you're hearing a few stories and then it st- stops being particularly interesting if Joe Schmidt has to deny it and then it ends up happening. This is just such a bowl from the blue, I think, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, which doesn't happen in any yeah. sport at the moment. But I, when your starting point is why, why would he do this as opposed to, oh, these are the pros and cons, I can see why maybe did it. It's a, it's a strange starting point. All right, Shane Horgan was critical of Farrell's role in England's World Cup failure on the podcast during during that competition and joins us now. Shane, were you as shocked as us, as shocked as everyone else? I certainly was, yeah. I really didn't see it coming uh, for a number of reasons. Most of all, um, probably the position that Andy Farrell, we last saw him in uh, at the end of the World Cup, wasn't a good position for him um, from the players and the critics um, and uh, obviously a disastrous run from England. But that said, uh, he's um, he's a quality coach and uh, he's respected but he certainly comes with baggage yeah and you were one of those critics as I mentioned on the podcast during the World Cup you felt that um, well there were a couple of issues you had one was maybe unavoidable given that he was in there and that was that his son was vying for a place in the team uh, and he ended up getting picked but also you felt that he would have had a big say in Sam Burgess getting picked it seems as though he was a very uh, maybe too strong a voice within that English setup. yeah I think uh I think his history as a coach is is kind of checkered as well, um, and the role that he seemed to move into in England was maybe away from his core strengths as a coach, and all, and maybe the I think the the the, the coaching role that he's going to have in Ireland. He certainly seemed to be pushing his own son, which. I, you know, I really do feel from him that I think he generally thinks that his his son was the best ten. Um, and you know, you put forward you put forward that opinion, and you know, what, from what I've heard, it, quite strongly, that's a very very difficult um, position for him to be in. Luckily, it's not one that um, he'll face with Ireland, but he does face a different challenge uh, when he comes up to play against the Sun. Mm. Um, uh, you know, when when Ireland do play England, um, that um, I think the, the that coupled with um, his sort of. <laughs> Not, not, I'm not sure if it was insistence or not, but he, he certainly was strongly in the the Burgess camp. That's come out subsequently to the World Cup. Um, and he's, he's taken a lot of flack for that, and I think rightly so. I think it was a, a poor decision. It was naive of him to think that Barrett could make, uh, sorry, that um, Burgess could make that change. It wasn't based on any um, experience that we've had of watching uh, Burgess over the last. 12 months it was just more of a gut and it didn't work out well um and he takes he'll have to take responsibility of that that's why he it was probably so surprising that he came into the Irish setup now I think his role will be very different it'll be very defined um but he'll still have, still have some input into selection I'm sure or his opinion will be valued 
but I think it'll be very much defined as a back as, as a sorry a defensive coach, which in fairness to him, uh, he's 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 good at. Um, is he the best man that Ireland could have got? I don't know. I don't know all the CVs that went in, but uh, he's certainly in the top echelon. Are you surprised that Joe Schmidt would bring on um, this extra pressure on himself to bring in Farrell, who has this major blot on his copybook, so that if things do ever go wrong, if Ireland have a, a horror show during the Six Nations defensively, then it's it's just this really easy thing for the media and fans to, to get on Ireland and Schmidt about. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised. It depends on who is available as a defensive coach. And if Andy Farrell was by a long way the best uh, defensive coach, I think you've got to respect Joe Smith for, for bringing him in. You have to say that was the right thing to do. You know, if it was a very close call if, or if, you, if there was a number of other candidates that were um, as able, then I think you are making a bit of a rod for your own back. I don't know why you would you know, bring that extra pressure. And you said, listen, it might all go away after the first couple of games. Um, that he's involved with the Ireland um, uh, team, it may it may just dissipate, but it may not either. And it's just a bit of a sideshow. And do you really do you want players uh, looking at the uh, at a sideshow being involved in that? I'm I'm not sure if you do. Um, that said, he may be this be the best standout candidate by a long way. Um, I think he's interesting in the way he does defend. Or he sets teams up to defend. He's certainly all about. Uh, a fast line speed. He likes an an in out, um, sorry, an outside in uh, defensive blitz. Uh, but I think there's also some weaknesses in his defensive pattern, and you can see it very much. Um, I've been watching it's just since um, he was announced as Irish defensive coach. I've been actually looking at some of the English defensive patterns, and um, they 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 have had a strong defense over the last number of years, but they've also been caught out. And if you look at uh, the Wales game. Um, if you see the way that the wingers in, protect, in particular, the, the back three of England defend, um, I think it's far too deep. It's not attack. It's not uh, connected to the uh, the final uh, defender on the line. And if you look for the, the famous Welsh try, um, Watson was you know far too far back, not connected to, to Barrett, and, and was easily exploited. So uh, I think there's a, he sometimes forces the players, or his desire is to force players to make mistakes because of a, a line speed that's um, that's super fast. But uh, there's ways of exploiting that as well, and I think you have to have a little bit of flex in your system to allow players to to recognise that. Shane, you said this might all disappear after one game with Ireland, but Farrell himself won't really disappear because when he first came into the setup with England and into rugby union, he was known as this huge personality, obviously an absolute legend in league, but he was sort of seen as a motivator, as this tough northerner. And then, as you say, his career has evolved and he's become this defence coach with, with Saracens and with England. But whatever else happens, he's not the sort of guy who's going to melt into the background. And at the moment, Ireland have a number of, you wouldn't quite call them meek, but Simon Easterby, for example, says absolutely nothing. And they're probably all on message what Schmidt wants. But Farrell's a very different character to from what we've seen uh, from other assistant coaches in recent times. You're right. He's not a, a shrinking violet. And I think he'll find it difficult to work with Joe because Joe is very controlling. It's very much the Joe show. He won't be used to that. But that said, um, in this opportunity with Ireland could not... I'm, I'm sure Andy Farrell could not have dreamed of such a good opportunity to come his way so quickly. And I think he'll, be, he'll have learned from uh, his experience with England. He'll recognise that... I think he was in a bit of a tough position if he didn't get this uh, Irish role. And Joe's given him a high-profile job with an excellent team who've been successful over the last two years, who will continue to be successful. Um, how successful, we don't know. And he'll be learning from the best technical coach or one of the uh, top two or three best technical coaches in the game. It's an absolute dream for Andy Farrell. He must be so delighted. He must be so happy now. Now, I don't know if, um, you know, if, if because of his position, the RFU got him a bit cheap or if he was not interested in a head coach role or an attacking role. Um, but I think he's gone back to the position where he can re-energize his career or, or get his career back on track the best by going into a team that's already well-established that they've got, you know, doesn't have to be built from the ground up and he's a very defined role within it. Now, I think Joe Smith has already mentioned that it's, or if you've mentioned that it's very much a defensive uh, role, 
um, I think he'll he'll remain in that and will not try to spread his wings too far for for quite a period of time um, because he'll have learned. Yeah, the fi- uh, the financial part of it would be interesting to see. I suppose that people always want to see these ju- juicy details, but uh, just based on the fact of the relative financial power of the ORFU compared to the IRFU, you'd assume that he's getting paid a lot less than he would have as England's defence coach, but I suppose you don't know the ins and outs of that one. Just on the very start of that answer, Shane, you just said that he will find Joe difficult to work with. Could you just clarify or expand on that a little bit? Why do you well, think he will? I, I think it's, you know, being in Joe's backroom staff isn't isn't easy. You know, he's very demanding. Um and it's it's uh, he's quite controlling as well. And I think th- these are positives. I'm not you know necessarily these are the negative uh, things. Um, it, it's difficult, you know. It'll be difficult to to keep Joe um, happy. And um, if there's a you know if there's an issue with the defence, uh, you know Joe will be looking to him very much and, and you know for explanations and, and answers. Um, I think it's J- it's Joe's um, certainly his overall game plan, his philosophies. Um, so I don't think there's a huge amount of room for debate within the backroom staff about how uh, the team's overall philosophy will will uh, proceed. Um, and I think that can be tricky for, for coaches. And if you look at, you know, a lot of the coaches that I've worked with, Joe, they've been um, they've come from from a head coach perspective um, as well and or background. And I think um, to to move into a, a complete position um, where you're um, you know, you're very much defined in your in your role as opposed to having a, a, a bigger input. I think that can be that can be tricky. Um, that said, I, I think Andy Farrell would be so happy to be in the position that he'll be in. Um, I think he'll be happy with how narrowly his his role is defined. Um, it, listen, I don't think he could have got a better job. The other thing is it's a longish contract. He's there till 2019. Uh, Joe Schmidt's gone in 2017. So... It, like, is this more of an IRFU move? Is this Joe thinking about after he's gone? Should we look I, into I the significance I of it? I certainly don't think Joe would be... Doesn't you know, care. Would, be, ...would have someone imposed on him. Um, so it'll be Joe's decision. He'll want to uh, have taken uh, Andy Farrell. Is there a longer-term view from the RFU? I don't know. Um, it's, uh, you know, bringing... Uh, Andy Farrell in now is certainly absolutely no threat to Joe. He'd be very comfortable. You know that. Um, and what confident makes, you say, what makes you say that, Shane, that he'd be no threat to Joe? Um, well, See, I, don't these... think, I don't think there's, you know, that necessarily would they be looking at him uh, as a, a, you know, a successor. You know, I don't, I don't know if that is um, something that is a make-up decision. It's very, mu- very much a guy to do his role, having been in a in a in English setup, and uh, you know, I suppose what we have to think as well. He'll gain um, and glean an insight into um, Ireland's biggest competitors in the Six Nations over the next couple of years. He has that, and that's you know maybe one of the key reasons why Joe's brought him in. Shane, just lastly, uh, back to Owen Farrell again and coaching against his son. This Andy Farrell's a. Uh, a fella who who says stuff like what, what has these uh, creeds, I guess. Um, destroy and enjoy is one thing that he apparently told the the Lions players defensively. We're taking our opponents to the hurt arena. He he uses these sort of phrases from time to time. He's going to have to do that. He's going to have to coach the likes of uh, Heaslip and O'Brien and these sort of characters to take the head off his son. Would you say professional duties aside that that would be uh, a comfortable thing for somebody to have to do? <laughs> I don't. I think you know the answer to that question. <laughs> Slightly leading question, all yeah, right? Yeah, I think you know the answer to that question. I, I think it's really difficult, and especially um, for Andy Farrell. You said he is a big personality, and he's someone who uses evocative language as well. And you've just mentioned a number of the phrases there that you know aren't as similar uh, to phrases that every team um, yeah. uses uh, one way or the other. You know, they try and. Um, make it sound uh, a little bit more exciting, make it sound a little bit more dramatic um, and, uh, you know, put an, a, a real, a f- you know, fear into the opposition. And I just think that his language would have to change if he's uh, if he's coaching against his son like that. I think it would be very, very difficult. Um, but, you know, they'll be used, it'll be used in general terms. What I'll be interested in, though, as, as a defensive coach, um, when you're, you know, you're talking about... Um, that 10 channel and it's a key one it's a key area and 
you know, not just from a defensive perspective, but from from um, an offensive perspective. I've never been in a changing room where, or a, in a team meeting where one of the uh, you know main tenets of of the game plan is not to run as hard as possible down the ten channel and you know break up the ten and hold the ten down and sort of you know all these sort of sort of kind of cheaty things that you can do. And um, they all involve trying to get the most uh, generally the most important player from the opposition team uh, you know uh, out of out of action and um that's that's the 10 when you play against england that's his son when you play against england it's, it's very difficult it's a difficult role but i suppose um and, and i think it's it, it, it complicates it more because it's at a national level um what was andy farrell's other options um some role in a, a team in england uh, possibly, maybe you know, one of the teams in in the French league or the um, the Pro 12. Although it's, I'd say that's that was less likely. So there's always a chance he's going to be coaching against his son. But I don't. I think maybe you know, once or twice a year in a in a Premiership game might be um, you know a nicer proposition than playing once a year in the Six Nations. Um, when it really, really matters in a crunch game that has national uh, exposure and importance. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, yeah. Well, it sounds like none of us are convinced that the Andy Farrell appointment is going to be the right one, but I think it's probably the most exciting one uh, to talk about anyway. Listen, Shane. It, it may work out. It may yeah. work out really well because, you know, the, there's elements of him as a defensive coach, which I think that are, are impressive. I think he'll learn a lot from Joe. Um, so if his, if his position and his role is... is sort of refined and, and curtailed to doing what he has been good at and what his background is, then I, I think it could work out okay. All right, Shane, great stuff. Thank you. Thanks, Simone. In the final and in again. And here. It is probably worth mentioning at this point that Farrell doesn't start until after the Six Nations. So he does have a while to think about what sort of language he employs when sending a bunch of large gentlemen out to scythe down his own son on the international scene. I'd be very interested in being part of that pre-match team talk, actually, when they first play, when Ireland and England first play with Farrell as defence coach. Will he have to, think he will have to change his language, Ken, or is it okay to tell the Irish lads to destroy and enjoy? Take, destroy and enjoy. Destroy my son and enjoy it. Destroy the boy. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my boy. Destroy, destroy, destroy my and boy. Destroy my, my lovely... My boy. Yeah. Which part of his body would you like us to target, coach? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, he's, he's taken our dime. Mm. You know, he's, he's working for us now. So, uh, you know, money is thicker than water, than blood. <laughs> so in that case, uh, yeah, I, I don't think he'll have it. I don't, he can't Did, tone it down. Didn't uh, Roger Mayweather at one point have to coach against his nephew, Floyd? No, Roger's it, the, the, the his dad, dad. His dad, his dad yeah. yeah. His, his, his uncle, oh, his uncle, his is, uncle uh, coached, sorry, yeah. His uncle, Roger, was coaching him. And his dad, Floyd Senior, was coaching Ricky. <laughs> that is ridiculous. That is very funny. 
And whatever uh, about it out half who may or may not get tackled, pretty sure a boxer's going to get punched in the head. Just back to the role that it seems Farrell played in the England. The English failure in the World Cup is going to go down as an historical one. They'll In England, they'll talk about that in 10, 20 years. And specifically, the biggest part of that, the most, uh, the biggest headline grabber anyway, was the selection and the central role of Burgess in the team. It appears from what everyone's saying that a ma- the big part of the decision-making, pro- decision-making process there was that Andy Farrell fancied this guy and really was able to overlook his flaws in favour of w- f- what he would bring to the team. Stuart Barnes called it the fundamentally the biggest selectorial cock-up I've seen in my lifetime. And this is the guy we've got as defence coach. Is it fair to define Farrell by that decision alone? Yeah, which, because which it's, we're the, assuming it's the biggest moment. All they were working towards was this World Cup. It's the biggest job he's had. It's clearly the position he had most influence over because of his background in rugby league. Um, he would have known the strengths of Sam Burgess. And maybe that's the key weakness he had and that that won't be repeated with Ireland because ultimately, if you know more than all the people around you about a topic, then you tend to see it bigger. It, it It's bigger in your vision than it mm. should be just because you see how good he is in league and you're blind as to how those flaws would be showing up in rugby union. So you would be concerned. You sound like Shane thinks it might still work out. He's not ruling it out. You're not well, he, blown he, away Well, he's overall. clearly a guy who isn't too good at seeing how his own biases might influence how he works. Mm. But maybe those things won't be shone on in an Irish setup. Yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure he's going to have a major role to play in the selection of the Irish team, to be honest. I don't think selection is going to be a major part of... I mean, I think the style of the play, the style of the defence, is that's his area. But actual get, actually getting involved, as he did in really the two selection blunders that England made, which was to uh, uh, jettison Ford at, at half as well. I mean, and he appeared to be key to the two of those. Yeah, so. well, they were connected, I think. Yeah, but there you go. Ken, please forward sell today's Irish Times Second Games Football Podcast. That's... Yeah... <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. You can walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shawny man? Well, we talked to Gabriel McCarty um, about Premier League managers, really. Um, we talked to Sid Lowe about Zinedine Zidane and his uh, replacing Rafael Benitez at Real Madrid. We also talked a lot about injuries in the Premier League and how you can cause them and perhaps avoid them. You can say it again. We also talked about Big Sam again. We talked about Big Sam, yeah, of course. Well, Big Sam was there shouting the odds. Mm. He just con- constantly thrusts his way to the centre of of attention and screams for attention. Uh, he, we even had an email uh, from a listener about Big Sam as well. Yeah. He, he met Big Sam, so so that's in there too. For the first time in 2016, let's do this. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Capitino's going to let him keep it. It's good. Touchdown. Touchdown, 40. Brian Murphy, the playoffs are almost upon us. You excited? It's January, boys, so Happy New Year, and that means, of course, yeah, the NFL playoffs. Am I excited? Boy, am I supposed to give the answer that gets the the listeners fired up, or am I supposed to give the real answer? Oh, no, the real answer. This sounds intriguing. Yeah, I don't know, man. There was something about this year's NFL season that did not seize my imagination as in the past. Now, as always, guys, we all have our own things going on, so A... My beloved 49ers are such a disaster and such a dumpster fire that I I have to believe that that is affecting my view of the NFL at large. Uh, it's a mess, and uh, I feel like they're not even in the league. So I'm like, <laughs> oh, God. So that that's definitely a factor. And the other thing I'd say is that, you know, and this goes back to the days when the great Owen McDevitt walked into Oracle Arena sporting that uh, scarf and that mm-hmm. T-shirt is that the Warriors basketball is so massive here in the Bay Area now. It's a runaway train of publicity and attention and excitement and drama that, to tell you the truth, you know, the plights of a Washington Redskins Green Bay Packers 
the plights of a Kansas City Chiefs Houston Texans playoff game pale in comparison. <laughs> well, this is backfiring the- spectacularly here, Brian, because myself and Kieran have already been talking on this podcast about how. Uh, neither of us have actually fully embraced the NFL this mm. year for no, not really out of any great uh, design. It's just that neither of us have, have really just three dudes not paying attention to the story that <laughs> we, we're about to talk about. We were hoping that you were <laughs> going to get us all jazzed up about the playoffs. We're going to dive deep here's, into the playoffs. Here's the best part: three dudes who are totally burnt on football, and now we're going to talk about it. How's great? How great is that? Like, <laughs> we're breaking hey, everybody, every listen rule. up. Yeah. Here's three guys who don't care about the NFL right now. Uh, no, isn't it funny? Yeah, I guess. You know, Carolina going 15 and one, you know, cool. I mean, Cam Newton dancing. We, we talked about that, right? Uh, you know, the Patriots are back, you know, but kind of uh, slightly weakened. You know, Peyton Manning. How about that? Peyton Manning and Al Jazeera. That spiced things up for a little bit. But uh, oh, yeah, other, that than was that, the, yeah. Guys, other than that, I yeah. mean, you know, the Arizona Cardinals. Um, uh, yeah, I think it is what it is, guys. I think we all deserve credit for calling it out. Yeah, the mm. Peyton Manning story was uh, that he was linked with this. Was it human growth hormone? Um, yeah, so here's the deal. I don't, I don't know if yeah. you guys talked about it, but. No, um, we didn't you know, at the time, it's, actually. It's, you did, yeah. So, you know, that he was accused by Al. The craziest thing is that just, just simply the words Al Jazeera. I mean, that, that, that has like, that is a game changer. People can't even get past that. That Al Jazeera, who none of us in America had ever heard of Al Jazeera until, of course, tragically. Uh, September 11th, 2001, when they, you know, provided all the, 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 the window into the world from Osama bin Laden's view. And it was like, whoa, what the hell is going on on this planet? And we were all totally baffled and bummed and utterly depressed. And that was the only reason we knew Al Jazeera. And now here we are 15 years later and Al Jazeera is like an actual network in America actually doing a documentary about PED use in American sports and linking one of the most bulletproof guys of all time, Peyton Manning, Mr. Endorsement, uh, it, to, to HGH. So I think that one blew people's minds for the, both the, the, the messenger and the subject. I happen to be one of those cynical people having lived here in San Francisco all my life, except for my brief stint in LA. And of course, uh, the North side of Dublin and Fibsborough, mm-hmm. uh, that the PED use is rampant and my favorite baseball players and all those guys have used them. So I tend to believe that Peyton Manning would use HGH to come back from neck surgery, and it does not seem far fetched to me at all. I can see him rationalizing it too. Hey, this isn't this isn't me getting back on the field. This is just me healing from an injury. Blah blah blah. You know, everybody's doing it. So I wasn't as put off as everybody else was. Most everybody's like, "Oh, Al Jazeera, how horrible! How dare they slay or how dare they slight the name of Peyton Manning?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah." Because uh, he probably used. So that's me, but I'm just, you know, you guys know me. I'm a very cynical guy. Yeah, yeah, I know. You certainly are, Brian. You're, you're world weary, I think. One team very much not in the playoffs, Brian, are the Cleveland Browns. Didn't stop their, their quarterback, Johnny Manziel, hitting the news over the weekend. What happened? This is amazing. Uh, so we have like these, these histories of, of, of busts, right? The, the NFL, for all the Peyton Mannings and Tom Brady's out there, we also have the flip side of fame of these guys who are just disasters who are supposed to be stars. You know, uh, back then, Jamarcus Russell was a guy drafted by the Oakland Raiders, number two overall. He was supposed to be a star. The guy ate his, ate his way out of the league and, and was busted for using Scissorp, that purple drank and all that. Uh, Ryan Leaf was a big, big, famous draft pick out of uh, Washington State and became the most, like, crazed, maniacal, uh, short-tempered, thin-skinned, poor performing bust. So you have these guys, you know, that have proved that for every Aaron Rodgers, there's a disaster. And now we have Johnny Manziel and he is the latest. Now I remember talking about him when he was in college with you guys, because he was such a dynamic college player. He won the flipping Heisman trophy, which is of course the exalted trophy given to the best college football player in America. It's one of those trophies that even in this day and age of fractured media and tarnished, uh, you know, um, legacies, the Heisman still has that glow about it, that it's a, a famous award and, and those who win it live forever, unless your name's OJ Simpson. But Johnny Manziel won the Heisman trophy at Texas A&M and he did it with a swagger. Remember he made his index finger and thumb 
rubbing together as the big money sign, like he was cash money, like he was going to get paid. He represented all those hip hop kids out there who wanted to get paid and be seen and, and not blend in. They were all, you know, everybody, all the, all the stuff that, that, that makes me cause to shout them to get off my lawn as an old man. My grandpa Simpson, old man yells at cloud moment, you know, when, uh, when Johnny Menzel hit the scene. But when he came into the NFL, there was intrigue. Hey, maybe he's going to be a great star. Maybe he's going to save the woeful Cleveland Browns. So not only does he have a horrible first year where his behavior turns off his, his teammates and his owners, well, he gets a second chance in year two. He goes to rehab in the offseason. He never specifically said for what. We all assumed it was alcohol. But then he comes back and starts screwing up again. He says he's rehabbing an injury, and he gets caught partying down in Texas shouting a rap song at a video camera when he was supposed to be rehabbing an injury. He gets into a fight with his girlfriend, very unfortunate public incident, fighting on the shoulder of a highway. Uh, everybody's saying, what's going to happen next with this guy? Well, they gave him a chance, and they gave him a chance to play just a few weeks ago, and he beat the 49ers. It was like, whoa, Johnny Manziel, maybe he's coming back. Maybe there's a shred of hope for this guy. And what does he do? He gets a concussion, so he's supposed to be rehabbing his injury, he turns up in Las Vegas mm-hmm. the night before their last game and no-shows the last game of the year. The cardinal sin, the no-show, one of the worst things you can do in professional sports. Not only that, not only is he no-show, he's spotted in Vegas, and then the capper just came on Monday when a Las Vegas radio host revealed that his sources said that Johnny Manziel tried to get into a club in disguise so that nobody would know him. You're like, wait, in disguise, what do he wear? Sunglasses? No, no, no. He wore a big blonde wig, a fake mustache, shades, and said his name was Billy. <laughs> now you just you 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 can't you can't hit enough laugh tracks here at this point. You can't slap your forehead enough. You can't just say, What an all-time bust enough about this guy. And already, guys, I've seen enterprising entrepreneurs have created t-shirts of the Browns jersey number two and the disembodied blonde wig, glasses, and mustache hovering over the jersey and on the back, the number two, and instead of Manziel, it says Billy. So uh, rush to get yourself your New Year's Manziel (laughs) Billy t-shirt, and bye-bye to Johnny Manziel's career, pretty much. We can sense the relish in your voice, Brian, as that story developed. (laughs) Another detail that was revealed by the the Vegas, the ESPN radio guys in Vegas, apparently he was there until three o'clock in the morning. This, even their statement, it reads like this, uh, like there was an actual serious national diplomatic incident or something. But anyway, he was there into the 3 a.m. hour is what I'm reading. And when it came time to pay the bill, he asked to have it comped because he didn't bring cash and also didn't want to put it on his card. Now, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if Johnny Manziel is the brightest spark, but I would have thought you at least if you don't want to, I can maybe see why he doesn't want to pay by card and leave a paper trail behind him there if he's trying to not be seen if he's going to disguise. But sure, he'd bring a few hundred dollars cash. I would also say that uh, I'm sure he's at one level, right, fine, he wants to be Billy to get into the club. But when it comes time to try and skip on paying the bill, I think then <laughs> is when you're going to have to reveal that you are, in fact, Johnny Manziel, NFL superstar. And then Rip there's a slip. The uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come I, clean. I don't think Billy is going to get any, you know, major bills comped. But Johnny Manziel, trying, maybe there's a chance. I'm trying to find his uh, his signing bonus, what he got from the NFL. I'm sure it was robust, uh, you know, uh, somewhere in the whatever, five million range or whatever. Uh, so you have enough cash to probably pay your whatever $500,000 bill. And that just shows you what a moron the guy is. If you're going to be a true pro and be a flake and be enough to wear your blonde wig and your mustache and call yourself Billy. You got to come strapped with a ton of cash and just another misstep by a, an absolute rookie. This guy's only 23 years old and he's already now there that he could be done. I mean, there's the idea of him being with a team next year. I mean, maybe because there's 32 teams in the NFL and because you need to carry about three quarterbacks on the roster every time. So what's that? Quick math. What's that? 96 quarterbacks who need to be employed. And there are so not 96 quarterbacks talented enough to play in the NFL that you can see some team bringing them in next summer, but you can just see it's a disaster written all over it. Heck, guys, before we came on the air, I was Googling him because I knew we wanted to talk about it. And I see that just today, LeBron James who's his fellow Ohioan, although Johnny's from Texas. He went to Texas A&M. But LeBron James, being a Cleveland Browns fan, says he's officially concerned about Manziel. Officially so concerned? Got, yes, he's officially concerned. 
Uh, the question I would like to ask, though, is that is there a path to, back to the NFL for for Manziel here? So uh, the guy obviously has, whether it's like alcoholism is probably a strong word for what he has. Maybe it's just a, a lack of discipline in his life. But is there a way where he doesn't get picked up next year and yet in three or four years when the guy is 26 or 27, there's a way back for him to the NFL when he realizes that, right, I still have talent. I still have six or seven really good years of my career left if if I can get my act together. Has that ever happened that a guy Oof. could flame out like this and then come back from uh, an, uh, an experience like this? Okay, you're testing the, the recesses of my of my trivia now. As you mentioned this, I'm going through names in my mind, and, and I'm, my first instinct is to just say no. That what you're the, the 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 scenario you're throwing out, I don't think has ever been accomplished in the NFL. I opened by comparing them to two of the most recent famous busts, Ryan Leaf and Jamarcus Russell. Those guys are nowhere near. Nowhere near an NFL team. Now, Jamarcus tried to come back, so he tried to pull what you're talking about, which is the, I'm going to go away for two years, make sure everybody forgets me, and then come back. I'm still 25, 26 years old, so I still have fresh legs. Somebody take a chance on me. I'm going to say no because two things. One, the wheel moves, baby, and people move on. People forget you, and new talent comes into the league. For every year that passes, new influx of talent comes. Fewer jobs are available for him when the next 21, 22, 23-year-old who's not a moron comes out and, and, and takes over uh, the job that he would have gotten. And the other thing, guys, that, that's kind of the hidden part about all this was that he was a questionable NFL prospect to begin with. That The huge controversy about him coming out was that he, he was such a little guy who, who got away with scrambling a lot in, in college and kind of got away with sort of maverick playmaking that you can in college because 11 defenders on the field, there's going to be five or six or seven of them who aren't going to be playing in the NFL, and you can take advantage of those guys with your you know slightly superior athleticism. When he gets to the NFL, it's nothing but 11 world-class thoroughbred athletes who are out there who have no uh, no interest in letting you freelance or scramble or all that. We've talked about that with guys like Russell Wilson and Colin Kaepernick and RG3. Now, Russell Wilson has reinvented himself as a heck of a pocket passer in the last several weeks, but Manziel never had that. And I think the first two years in the league, Cleveland was basically saying, Ugh, we don't even really like his skill set that much. So, So he's got so much going against him. You know, he's known as Johnny Football was his nickname in, in Texas. When, when things were good, when he was making the cash money sign and winning the Heisman and he was popular for being the swag guy and he was called Johnny Football, we had a listener text us in and say, let me be the first to trademark the nickname Johnny Arena Football because that might be the only place he finds a job in our low, low-level indoor football league called Arena Football, which I don't even know if you guys know about over in Ireland, but it's this kind of third-rate indoor league that's played on a shrunken-down field, uh, and so maybe that's his only hope. Brian, it's wildcard weekend uh, to open things off, and the match I wanted to ask you about was the visit of the your beloved Seattle Seahawks to oh. uh, to Minnesota. They're going to yeah. play the Vikings, who are currently playing in an outdoor stadium. They usually play in a dome, but that's being renovated or they're moving to a new dome, so they're playing outside and I read an article today saying that it's going to be historically cold in Minnesota. Does this kind of thing actually matter to teams who are made up of is it an advantage to the home team, even though they're made up of, you know, not exactly filled with people from the city? It's a great question. And it and, and it's this time of year that we always have these kind of discussions when teams in the month. And yeah, by the way, I just looked AccuWeather says a high of one on Sunday, a low of seven below. And every year in January, when a team from a northern climate makes it into the playoffs, Specifically, the Green Bay Packers is the one everybody always talks about because they've been so successful with Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. The question of weather and the question of how much it affects guys and the question of how much it provides an advantage or a disadvantage. And it's real. It is real. Uh, how, how much guys can be tougher than the other guy. What teams are more oriented to run the ball instead of passing the ball in the cold weather? What teams have tougher defenses that tend to play weather in cold weather? I mean, we've talked about this. I remember years ago, we talked about the Ice Bowl, the legendary Dallas Cowboys-Green Bay Packers game that was played. It was literally, by statistics, the coldest game in NFL history when it was honestly dangerous to the players to be even out there. And guys, just two years ago, 
you want to talk about washed up careers, just two years ago, Colin Kaepernick, remember that name? We used mm. to talk about him. He led the 49ers into Green Bay in the second coldest game in 49er history, and he went into Lambeau Field wearing no sleeves. He wore his jersey with no sleeves to prove how tough he was. It becomes a real mental game, and Kaepernick played great that day, and they beat the Packers. So, no, it's not a lock that because the Minnesota Vikings have Minnesota on their name because they play in that stadium, it's not a lock at all that they would be the, the advantage team. Now, you have home field advantage. You're sleeping in your own bed. You're playing out of your own locker room. You have your own fans yelling when Seattle's on offense. That's real. But when it comes to the weather, it kind of levels it out. It kind of evens the playing field. Because to, to be honest, guys, Minnesota starts training in July. There's no weather like that. And they play all the way up until December. And it's never one degree ever until now. So they're playing in it really for the first time. I mean, they might have had a couple of chilly days in December. So this is unusual for them, too. And you brought up the point, too, on that, you know, a lot of these guys, most of the football players come from the Southeastern Conference uh, these days, you know, Alabama and Auburn and Georgia and Florida. Those are guys who grew up in extremely warm climates. They grew up in Florida. They grew up in uh, Alabama. That's, that's hot and humid weather. So none of these guys are conditioned to do it. So it becomes who can block it out mentally, who can run the ball better, who has the better coaching staff. So what it does, though, for all of us is it just makes for a great visual. It's yeah. one of the great things the NFL has always had is just this, you know, it's always viewed as the ultimate man sport. So it's it's extreme conditions, you know, like watching a, a documentary on the Discovery Channel about Alaska or something like that, where you're just sitting on your couch, cozy with your beer <laughs> and your blanket, and you're like, oh, look at these warriors in these extreme tundra conditions. That's something the NFL has over baseball and basketball as always a spectacular viewing environment. So that's what we'll enjoy. I still think, though, that Seattle, well, they're favored, actually, I think, by... I think they're favored by six points, guys, aren't they? Or at least they're favored. And yeah, I think three of the four, uh, th- three of the four lower ranked teams are considered favorites by Vegas, which in itself is kind of a weird weekend. No, it kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier about how the season just hasn't really grabbed. There is no dominant team to grab your imagination other than Cam Newton, the Carolina Panthers. So that's where we're at. We're at this NFL weekend where we're kind of going in going, huh? So what we'd like is to see somebody dazzle us. I mean, you're going to get what's going to happen is you're going to get great games. One, one or two of these games is going to be a classic. Maybe the Seahawks Vikings game because of the weather. And it's to be the last game on Sunday. One or two of these games will jump out. And, and, and by next week, maybe the three of us will be will be fired up on the NFL a little bit. Brian, I'm almost certain you will be fired up. I'm going to back you on that one. Right right here, I'm going to back you. And also right here, Karen, I have to mention this. Go on. It was this time last year, the very first U.S. Murph slot of 2015, mm. that we floated the idea. I should say this was done in my absence, but Mark Horgan and yourself floated the brilliant yeah. idea of going to San Francisco to meet the great man face-to-face. It's a time for resolutions. By the middle of May, where were we? were sitting across from Brian in a bar right beside the Willie May statue. Sharing a couple of anchor steams. Anch- yeah. <laughs> you just stopped doing the American accent. You're about to do the American accent there, and, and you stopped yourself. So, okay, Brian, 2016 is a year that U.S. Murph returns to his roots. You're coming to Ireland. The only question is, when suits you? So you, wow. yeah, We know this, the sports calendar in America. It's, it's set in stone. So we want to d- give us your top three and let's let's work something out here. Oh my God! You talk, wow! First of all, I'm overwhelmed. I feel like a uh, I feel like a beauty contest pageant. You know, like Miss Colombia and Miss Philippines when they got it wrong a couple weeks ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know what amazing, I mean? amazing! I kind of feel like Miss Philippines standing off to the side, overwhelmed. I've been stunned with this news that we're going to lock this thing down live on the podcast right here. Wow! So I gotta I gotta get over my emotions and and quickly put the wheels back on. Okay, so summer times, you know, summertime would be maybe number one, yeah. maybe like a. I know Ireland is beautiful in the in the fall. Maybe September would be a okay. a, a second back up there. Good, but good. Um, and if I had to throw a third, I could just steal a page out of your book and make it the the spring fling and and, and return one year later in in May. But. Those would be my first three, guys. And, and again, this is all top of the head. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with emotion oh. and the possibilities of this all going down. Well, if any generous um, backers are listening and really want U.S. Merp to come over, uh, oh, let's make this thing oh, happen. Don't, don't, don't read it. July, I mean, well, these, pending Ireland they, winning the Euro 2016, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, you can come to for the homecoming when Ireland win Euro 2016. That would be early, yeah, be early up, to mid-July. i be on the parade July. with Michael Carruth, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
And my man, uh, oh, come on, don't drop the ball on the well, other gold medal guy from 92. Wayne Michael Mc- Collins. W- w- Michael Collins? Wayne McCullough? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me get this right here. Michael Collins, he was a different guy. Michael yeah, Collins is a slightly different of the IRA, uh, uh, Brian, but that's neither slightly here different that historical figure. That was Liam Neeson, right? He yeah. was Liam yes. Neeson, right? Yes. That was Michael Collins. So wait a minute. Let me get this right again. Michael Carruth. Yep. And Wayne McCulloch. Yeah. There yeah. we go. There you are. Okay. Those, I want to ride in a float. Euro 2016 champions. I want to go down O'Connell Street with Carruth and McCulloch. And, and we can talk about Collins. All right. We can do that. How's <laughs> well, that? That, that, we'll part, that part is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> and won't happen. But the rest of it will. We're going to see you in 2016, Brian. In the hey. meantime, enjoy the football. Can't wait, boys. Take care. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians. And as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. Ah, I don't know. Can all those dates sound good to me? July, September, spring. Oh, yeah. Uh, you're, you're free. You're, as long as you're free. Pretty so much, yeah. Welcome, US Murph, back onto these shores, I believe. Well, I mean, let's let's book that first and then let's all work our schedules exactly, yeah. around his. I mean, I think that's only fair. Just to flesh out that Peyton Manning human growth hormone story a little bit in case you weren't following this and most people in America don't want to follow it by the sounds of mm. what Brian was saying there. Just let's brush this one under the carpet. Dave Hannigan was writing about this today in his America at Large column and like US Murphy described the reaction to the story as being somewhere between complete indifference and barely concealed hostility towards Al Jazeera. So the allegations were made as part of a documentary called the dark side, the secret world of sports doping. And the allegation is, specifically in 2011, Manning's wife was uh, received several shipments of human growth hormone from the Geyer Institute in Indianapolis. That's the same place, that's the same doctor who was supposed to have sent the stuff. It was the same guy who was administering a variety of treatments to Manning at that time to help him recover from serious neck surgery. He was still playing for the Colts in Indianapolis. So he was getting all these treatments from this doctor who then sent human growth hormone to the allegedly sent human growth hormone to the home of um, of Manning addressed well, to Manning's understand. wife. Why would he have? <laughs> why would he have wanted human growth hormone to be sent to his home? Well, no, he didn't know it's his wife. Can, can, why would his wife have even have wanted that? Well, well, who knows? I don't even understand that. The counter argument here is that the main source of the center of the documentary recanted the statements he made in the program. So a lot of people jumped on this and said, "Look, this guy who was blabbing his mouth off." took the story back pretty quickly, which he did when he realised he'd been stung by an undercover operation. <laughs> you do have to bear that in mind. And according to Dave Hannigan's piece... Another thing, like, another thing that doesn't add up in this story, why would that guy want, want to recant his story? I mean, it's... This, he, seems to, he seems to be stating... A riddle wrapped inside an enigma. He seems to be stating all these facts pretty boldly when he was having the original conversation. And what channel did you say this was? ISIS News or something? Al Jazeera, yeah. Oh, Al Jazeera, well... Can anyone can anyone really trust what's on Al Jazeera? Mike Ditka again made that precise point. Are you serious? All but dismissed it, according to Dave Hannigan, as a dodgy Arab station. You're kidding? Yeah, me. that's not the phrase that Ditka used, but that's what Hannigan says. Oh, that right, okay. Former Chicago Bears coach Mike Ditka all but dismissed it as a dodgy Arab station. Uh, and according <sighs> to Hannigan's piece, the one of Al Jazeera's reporters says she's a second source backing up the original story. So there are questions remaining to answer, but not many people wanting to ask them. Yeah, that is... I was intrigued when I first saw this story on Twitter. I did detect a very hostile reaction, a very dismissive reaction among people. And honestly, the Al Jazeera thing didn't twig at all at at first. I just thought, wow, everyone's... Even by American sports fan standards, everyone really seems to think this is a ludicrous story and doesn't seem to want to engage with the topic of PEDs. I'm seeing there's a little more to it than that, maybe. Yeah. The reaction. Well, I don't know. I mean, do you think that most American sports fans just basically accept that all these guys are, are, are on drugs? Well, they're kind of like it's is it that is it really that big a deal? Yeah, I mean, lot, we see what we see what we're asking them to do. Of course, they're on drugs. Some you know people definitely think that way. Yeah, a lot of people do. In this case, though, it's, it's not. Some, it's not. They're not accepting that Manning's on drugs. From a lot of what I've seen, they're rubbishing this joke of a station, Al Jazeera, for mm. coming over to America yeah. and having a go. At one of the, and this is Peyton Manning, by the way. He's son of Archie Manning, one of the uh, a very distinguished old American quarterback. Brother of uh, Eli Manning, you know this is the royal family. He'd be on like the Mount Rushmore of American football. Oh yeah, and he's a real. You know, he's, he's one of the Mannings. Yeah, he's a real American hero type figure in a slightly different way to Tom Brady. So I, I, do, I think that people don't want to believe that he would do it uh, necessarily. You know, they sure those big linebackers have to juice themselves up a little bit, but no, 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 Peyton Manning. No, he's a good guy. Oil that elbow a little he bit. Do that. Another performance enhancing drug news. Oh yeah. Anyone want a bit more? Anyone oh, go got on. the appetite for any more? I can't go on then. 
It's worth pointing out that the IWF has belatedly started its crackdown by issuing life bans to three senior figures within the sport. Papa Masada Diak, the son of the former president. I mean Diak. Yep, at the former Russian Athletics Federation president, that's Valentin Baleshnikov. Uh, almost certainly pronounced incorrectly. I, I apologise to Valentin, but we don't have to worry about him in future anyway, okay. in a, from a sporting point of view. He's out of there. And IWF treasurer Alexei Melnikov, who was a senior coach in Russia, have all been handed lifetime bans. And Gabriel Dahl, he's the former anti-doping director in the IWF. He's been banned for five years. This is all stemming from the issues in Russia. Where's Mr. Dahl from? Is that, how do you spell his name? D-O-L-L-E. I'm not sure where Dahl is from, off the top of my head. The Guardian's Sean Ingle makes the point that this is just the start of what's going to be a somewhat difficult month for the IWF because the second part of Dick Pound's report is due to be released next week. It was mm. part one of that report that triggered the suspension of Russian athletics in the first place. So we'll see what happens. Should be good. Future. Yeah. On that cheery note, thank you, Kieran. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Kenneth, thanks so much for listening. The football podcast was a good one. So devote some time to that if you can. And we'll chat to you again on Monday. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.